Well, if you are kindergarten, if you are kindergarten through fifth grade, we'll go ahead and dismiss you at this time to Kids Church. Kindergarten through fifth grade. We continue to appreciate your patience uh, as we figure out uh, the sound in the new system, uh, in the new sanctuary. We are, uh, I told uh, Joel and the praise team that this Sunday, that this Sunday uh, was going to be... uh, one of those Sundays where we worked out a lot of bugs. We had the full band up here uh, this Sunday, and we're continuing to work out bugs. So we appreciate you and your patience as we continue to work out bugs over the next couple of weeks. Uh, well, this morning as we continue uh, our study, we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 18. Just so you know, all your hearing aids are working correctly. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 this morning. And as we continue to build upon the theme uh, that we looked at last week, uh, we understand that that Jesus made this this admonition to the church, uh, to his disciples, that we are to to be converted as children and to become like little children. Not childish, but childlike. And and we looked at the the idea of childlikeness, and and I talked about, and I showed you the beautiful artwork that my children have drawn in Anna's rainbow and Nicholas's robot and Daniel's family portrait, and we saw that that there's nothing spectacular about those pieces of artwork, but because they were from my kids, that they were special, and because they were from my children, because they were from my children. There was a special affection and a special, a peculiar love that I had for those pieces of artwork. And we understand that, that God views us in that same light, that he loves us, and that, that because he loves us, that there is an affection that he has for us, and therefore we should be able to approach him and serve him in a boldness. So many of us, I believe, approach God and, and we, we have this idea that, that somehow we're not going to be good enough. That somehow we, we're not going to pray well enough, and so we're reluctant to pray. I can't tell you how many people, how many church members that, that, that I talk to that say, look, preacher, just don't ever call me up in front of the church to pray. If you call me up in front of the church to pray, I'm leaving. That's it. I'm, I'm gone, and, and I may never come back. And, and if you call me up and, and ask me to speak in front of the church, then, then that, that, that's it. You, know, you and I are not friends anymore. And the idea, not only is, is it that they're, that they're afraid that they're going to, you know, that they, they loathe public speaking, but, but that they don't want to be, they don't want to be praying and doing something spiritual in front of someone because they themselves don't feel worthy before God. They think that, that somehow that they're not going to be good on the, that they're not going to pray well enough or that they're going to misspeak. And so many of us are, are afraid. So many of us are afraid of sharing our faith because what if we say something wrong? What if we mess up? So many of us are afraid of serving because if we don't do it right, then God's going to be angry with us or God's not going to be happy with us. It didn't matter what Anna's picture looked like. The fact was is that she drew it. 
And she brought it to me and said, Daddy, I made this for you. When we come to God with, with a heart of sincerity and a heart of humility, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what it, what it ends up, how it ends up coming out of our mouth. God looks at our heart and He sees His children who are longing to serve Him and who are longing to please Him, and God is pleased. And He says, he says disciples, it doesn't matter how it looks. What I'm concerned about is your heart. And so we see God communicating to His disciples the depth of the love that He has for His children. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to read verses 5 through 14 this morning as Jesus continues to build upon this theme of the love that he has for his children. Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 through 14. Jesus says, And whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes be cast into the fiery hell. See to to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think if any man has a hundred sheep And one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that is straying? And it turns out that he finds it. Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Lord, may we this morning May we see the depth of your love and the greatness of your compassion as you pursue your children. God, this morning, may we be overwhelmed with awe that in your great grace you pursued us. Speak to our hearts this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I labeled this morning's sermon the Hound of Heaven because I believe that Jesus is that great hound. And and, uh, this is not original to me. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called Jesus the Hound of Heaven. He said that he is that 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 dog, that that bloodhound that will never give up on us, that he pursues us even when we don't want to be pursued, and that he longs for us and that he comes after us. And as I was reading this passage this morning, it's so blatantly obvious that Jesus is the one that is pursuing us. And I pray that as we leave this place this morning, 
that we will pursue him because he has pursued us. First John chapter 4, 19 tells us that we love God because he first loved us. That there is not a, a unique love that we have for God. We did not come into this world longing to love God and longing to serve God and longing to be obedient to God. In fact, the very opposite is true. We came into this world hating God. We came into this world an enemy of God. And yet God pursued us. The scripture says in Romans chapter 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he didn't wait for us to turn our affection towards him. That while we were sinners, while we were liars, enemies of, enemies of God, haters of God, that that is when Christ pursued us and gave his red, rich, royal blood on a Roman rugged cross that we might come to know him. And so this morning, we understand that Christ pursues us. Matthew chapter 18, verse 5. I want to point out that it is often easy to misinterpret this passage. After we get past verse 3, every time Jesus is talking about little children, he's talking about followers of Jesus. Go back to verse 3. He said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, after verse 3, Jesus is equating all of those little children. He says several times in this passage, these little ones of mine to stumble. If you have uh, all of those who believe, all of these little ones of mine. Jesus is referencing all of those who have come to faith in Christ. Those who have been converted with a humility of heart and have placed their faith in Christ. And so whenever we get to verse 5 and it says, Whoever receives such a, such a child in my name receives me. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, I don't want us to misinterpret this. Jesus is not saying if you make a child stumble, then, then you need to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. While I don't think that that's an inaccurate statement. If you make a child stumble, you probably ought to have a millstone around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. But that is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage, Jesus is saying, if you are the means, if you are the mechanism by which a believer, one who has humbly come to belief in Christ and have begun following him, then this should be the consequence of you causing one of these believers to stumble. So we understand, we understand that Jesus is passionate and is pursuing holiness within his church. Look at the text. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones of mine, so we understand these little ones of mine who believe to be the church, the, the, the church universal, those who believe in Christ, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy, heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now I want to point out and clarify Jesus' illustration here. A millstone is not... A rock. A millstone is a huge rock. It is what would be used to grind grain and make flour or make cornmeal or make uh, uh, something of, of powdery substance. And so they would take the grain and there would be a giant a giant slab that they would put the grain upon, and then there would be a, a, a cylindrical stone that was 
thousands and thousands of pounds that would be placed upon this slab, and it would be tied to a mule or an ox, and they would, they would go around and around, and that stone would roll over that, that, that slab, and it would crush the grain. And so, so whenever Jesus says, it is better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea, not into a pond or a lake, but be thrown into the depths of the sea, we must understand the gravity and the, the veracity that Jesus is speaking of here. He's not saying it is better for you that bad things happen. He is saying it would be better for you to die a certain imminent death. And so Jesus is passionate about his church and holiness within his church. Why? God pursues holiness in his church because his church is his ordained method and his ordained means for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We read in Matthew chapter 28, and we'll get to that in about three years. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given unto me, therefore go and make disciples baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And he fulfills his great commission through the church. As Jesus ascends, Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus says, you receive power. Who's he talking to? To, to? to the disciples. You receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you, the disciples, will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. As the disciples are scattered throughout Asia Minor, the local church becomes the means and the mechanism for the Great Commission. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Turn with me, if you will. I want us to see how Peter admonishes the church. He understands that the church is to emulate Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. Because we are God's ordained methodology, we are God's ordained means for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, Peter says this to the church in verse 9. He says, But you, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want us to look at verse 9 and just look at a couple of Things that Peter says. The very first three statements he says, he says, you are a chosen race. That statement right there carries with it a distinction. Whenever we look out amongst the people that are here this morning, you can look and you can see that there are people that look different than you do. You look at Miss Lynette and she looks different than Natalie. And you look at Alephus and he looks different than Mr. Billy. Because they're different races, there is, a, there is a distinction between them. And Peter makes this same distinction, he makes the same clarification, that within the church, there should be a distinction among us and the world. 
that we are a chosen race, that we have been called out. He makes the next statement, a royal priesthood. Even amongst the Jews, the priests were called out. They were separate. They were separate by their bloodline. They were separate by their behavior. They were separate by their expectations. There was a, there was a distinction amongst the priests. And then in the last statement, you are a holy nation. The word holy literally means a nation that is set apart, a nation that is other. You are distinctly different. Jesus pursues holiness within his church. Paul makes this same statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. He says it a little differently. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15, Paul says this, talking about the church. He says, we, believers, little children, those who are in Christ, we believers are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, those who are perishing, to the one, an aroma of death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. There is a distinction amongst those who are called to be Christians. We should be different than the world around us. We should be distinctly other. Not not in an arrogance or or a a pious, holier-than-thou mentality, but in a God-glorifying, sanctifying way. That that which the world loves, we loathe. And that which the world loathes, hates, we love. Because we have been called, sanctified, justified, and by God's grace will one day be glorified. God pursues holiness in his church. Go back to Matthew chapter 18. Not only does God pursue holiness within his church, but if you look, the scripture tells us that God desires us to pursue holiness individually. Look at the text. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks in verses 6 about the whole church, and then in verses 7, 8, 9 and 10, Jesus talks about holiness individually. He talks about, and and this is a a restatement of something that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. God pursues holiness in His church. God pursues holiness in individuals. Look at verses uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10. He says, the world... Uh, in, the, in the world there are stumbling blocks, verse 8. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, verse 9. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. See to it that you do not despise any of these little ones. There is a desire for God, for His individuals within His church to be holy. God pursues holiness. Why? Because our individual holiness is paramount. Our individual holiness is paramount to our relationship with Christ. God pursues holiness in our in individuals. And the holiness within us is convicting us of sin. 
I want us to understand something. As Jesus is talking about in verses 8 and 9, he's talking about individual sin. And I believe that so many of us view sin with a relativistic mentality. We think that as long as I'm not as bad as the guy sitting next to me, as long as I'm not as wicked, as long as I'm not as, as evil as my coworker, my neighbor, so on and so forth, then we're okay. But I want us to understand the gravity at which Christ and which God views sin. Notice the language that Jesus used. Now, he is using hyperbole. He doesn't literally want people to pluck out their eyeballs and cut off their hands. He's using hyperbole. But the message is the same. Jesus wants us to understand the gravity in which he views sin. And for us, sin is very relative. We believe that our sin is directly related to what we have done. But I think the scripture teaches us something quite differently. I think the scripture teaches us that the gravity of our sin has nothing to do with what we have done, has nothing to do with with what our offense is, and has everything to do with who our offense is against. If I told you that there was a man who had a large family, And he was barely struggling to make ends meet. Every week, he didn't know whether or not he would have enough money to feed his children, his wife. And then one day, out of the blue, the company that he works for as a custodian fires him. They're having to cut back. And they lay him off. And after months of trying to find another job, the unemployment runs out and he has no more income. And then he finds a way to to infiltrate the bank account of the CEO, the executive of the very company that laid him off. And he steals twenty, thirty thousand dollars from this CEO who has billions. Many of us would say, well, that's just justice. But thievery is thievery. What if I told you? that there was a wealthy, very affluent man who had all of the resources in the world. And he saw fit to steal that exact same twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, not from a company, but from a charitable organization, from Mother Teresa. We would look at that same exact 
offense and think this man needs to be thrown under the jail. He needs to be beaten, flogged, take everything he has and and give it away because he has done something completely and utterly deplorable. We've got two different contrasting situations. The same offense, but it's it's perpetrated against two completely different people. On one hand, you've got the wealthy executive. You've got the the guy who has everything, he needs nothing, and, and in fact, it would probably be good for him to have twenty or $30,000 stolen from him. Maybe he would learn his lesson. Maybe he wouldn't fire the custodian, right? And then you've got Mother Teresa, who gave her whole life to serve others. The offense is not the problem. It is who the offense is is against. Go with me, if you will, to Psalm chapter 51. I want us to see what David said after he has sinned with Bathsheba. David understood after he was confronted by his sin that he had lied, he had cheated, he had stolen, he had murdered, he had broken all ten of the Ten Commandments in one fell swoop. Look at what he says. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 4, it says, "Against talking to God, he said, Against thee and thee alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David understood that the gravity of my sin was not the offense. It was not the lie. It was not the, the thievery. It was not the adultery. It was not the murder. The gravity of my offense was because of whom I had sinned against. We just got done looking at the greatness at which God loves us. We just got done looking at at the depth of the love that God has for us. And Jesus says, he says, if God loves you so much, what makes your sin so deplorable is not what you have done, but whom you have done it against. He has given you everything. Your health, your life, your financial blessings, everything you have, your children, your family. The scripture says that that every good and perfect gift is a gift from the Father who loves us. He is the one who has given us everything, and He is the one who we shake our fists at and who we say, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to please myself. I am going to serve this God rather than serving you. Our greatest defense in our sin is not what we've done, but whom we have done it against. Jesus speaks of the gravity of our sin. And he says, church, he says individuals, It is not what you have done, but it's who you've done it against. He says, and because this sin is so grave, we must go to to great lengths to flee from immorality. And I want us to understand that sin is not simply what we do, but it's oftentimes what we don't do. James tells us, 
he who knows the good he ought to do in James chapter 4, that he who knows the good he ought to do and doeth it not to him, it is sin. So when we don't show kindness, when we don't show compassion, when we don't share our faith, when we don't spend time in God's Word, when we don't go to Him in prayer, when we don't do what we ought to do, it is sin. It is not just the acts of of disobedience. It's not just the acts of idolatry, the acts of immorality that is sin. But the Scripture tells us that he who knows the good he ought to do and doeth it not to him, that is sin. But I want us to see how Jesus transitions this passage. He talks about, in the first couple of passages, he talks about how how passionately he pursues holiness within his church and how passionately he pursues holiness within the individual. And then he transitions. And look at verse 12. He transitions and he says, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, that he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine which have not gone astray, such is the will of the Father who is in heaven, that not one of these little ones perish. I want us to see the grace of God. If we look at the first part of this passage, every one of us would look at it and say, I have oftentimes been the cause of someone stumbling. Maybe I have ran my mouth when I shouldn't have. Maybe I have called to share a prayer request that had nothing to do with prayer requests and it was just a way for me to gossip. Maybe I have, have placed someone in a, in a situation or a circumstance that, that was very compromising, very difficult for them. Maybe I have been the means of causing someone within the church to stumble. Maybe I have not seen my own sin as as gravely as Christ sees it, and I have relativized my sin, and I have said, oh, it's no big deal. If we're honest with ourselves, we see our sin in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, but I want us to see in verse 12 the grace of God. That not only does God pursue holiness in His church, not only does God pursue holiness in His children, God pursues His children when we stray. God pursues His children when we stray. The lost sheep, I want us to notice the language. The lost sheep was and is His child. Notice the language. Verse 12, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of his sheep has gone astray, he leaves the 99 on the mountain and goes in search for the one that is straying. And if it turns out that he finds it, he truly rejoices over it more than the other 99, which has not gone astray. And listen to verse 14. Thus it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, remember back in verse 6, we said these little ones, is going to be synonymous with those who believed in Christ, those who trusted in Him in a humility of heart. That's the same words, the same language that's used in verse 14. The sheep that has gone astray is and always was His. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. John chapter 18 
verse 9. Jesus gives us this beautiful illustration of his faithfulness and his keeping ability. He says, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you've given me, talking to the Father, of all of those you've given me, all those little ones that are mine, I have lost none of them. Church, do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying that of those sheep that God has given him, he has lost none of them. Amen? You say, but preacher, what about about the drug addict who came to faith as a child and now is running from God? The faithfulness of God says that I have lost none of them. Philippians chapter 1, 6 says, He who began a good work in you is faithful and just to complete that work in the day of Christ Jesus. You say, well, preacher, what about that, what about that, that pastor who, who had affair after affair and has left his wife and is now running from God? The scripture says that Jesus said, I have lost none of them. And if they were his, he will keep them. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1 that all of those who place their faith and trust in Christ are sealed with him in the Holy Spirit and that he has lost none of them. The scripture tells us that that we are held by grace, by his sovereign right hand and that none of us shall be able to pluck and that the enemy shall not be able to pluck us out of his hand because he is the one who holds us he is the one who keeps us and i want us to understand this church that he is the hound of heaven and he is pursuing you even when you don't want to be pursued as we understand this illustration that one sheep who's gone astray is often gone astray of his own volition And the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and finds that sheep. And oftentimes would have to break the leg of the sheep, put it over his back, and carry that sheep back to the fold and nurse it back to health in order to keep that sheep. That is the tenacity with which God pursues us. That sometimes as he pursues us, he has to bring about godly discipline in our lives. He has to bring about afflictions. He has to bring about trials and tribulation to break our legs, metaphorically speaking, in order for us to see the grace of God as he pours it out to us and see the depth of our sin and see the the discipline of God. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10 that God disciplines those whom he loves. And in the midst of the discipline, we don't enjoy it. But I am so thankful that God continues to pursue me. I am so thankful that that when I stray, and it's often, and when I am disobedient, and it's often, ask my wife and my children, that God continually pursues me. And when I am am disobedient, when I am arrogant, when I am haughty, and when I I am... When I'm not what Christ has called me to be, He pursues me. And He never gives up on me. And sometimes He breaks my legs, throws me on His shoulders, carries me back to the fold, and then loves me. God pursued you. 
He will continue to pursue you. You can't outrun or outsin the grace of God. There are some of you here this morning who are in the midst of being pursued by God. And you may feel that that I have outrun the grace of God. I have outsinned His compassion. That there is no way that God would forgive me. The scripture says something completely different. That He is the hound of heaven who pursues you consistently even when you don't want to be pursued. And He's lost none. His track record is a thousand percent. And He's not going to lose you either. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You pursue us even when we don't want to be pursued. That You come after us and You love us even when we are unlovable. If you're here this morning... For the very first time, you realize that God truly loves you. Not because of anything you can do for Him, not because of anything you you will do for Him, but He loves you because of who you are. And He desires to make you His. If that's you this morning, I would invite you to come. There's some of you here this morning who have not pursued personal holiness. You've allowed apathy, indifference to creep into your life. Sure, you're not as bad as the next guy, but you know that you're not living in obedience to God's Word. As we go into this time of invitation, will you heed the voice of the Holy Spirit? May you find yourself obedient. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. That you'd convict us of sin. You'd draw us to your bleeding side. In Jesus' name we pray.